Hello, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor. Today I have a little bonus content for you, but before I introduce it, I'd like to start with a little explanation. Many of you have been asking, understandably enough, when I am going to release the next Hobbit lecture. Even more of you have probably been wondering why the heck it's taking me so long to come out with it, even though you've been too polite to ask me that. I thought, therefore, that I'd explain the whole situation so that you can know what to expect. In the foreword to the second edition of The Lord of the Ring, Tolkien discusses the length of time that it took him to write the books, remarking that the composition of The Lord of the Rings went on at intervals during the years 1936 to 1949, a period in which I had many duties that I did not neglect, and many other interests as a learner and a teacher that often absorbed me. This summer, I have been absorbed in one such other interest. I've been finishing up an article on Chaucer's Wife of Bath's prologue and tale from the Canterbury Tales that I began several years ago. What's more, my colleagues and superiors at my college have urged me to think of completing this article in the light of a duty that I should not neglect. Right now I have a complete draft written and am in the painstaking process of finalizing my footnotes. It should be finished and submitted within a week. I am positively squirming with eagerness to get back to my notes on The Hobbit Lecture Number 4. I've got the thing about half written already, and I'll finish it up as soon as possible, believe me, just as soon as this confusticated Chaucer article is in the mail. My one consolation for this delay is the knowledge that once this article is done, I am free to enter a time in which I can focus exclusively on generating this audio content. I've got nothing other than these lectures and podcasts on my scholarly agenda in the near future, and I'm really excited to focus exclusively on this project. Now, in the meantime, I have, as I mentioned, some bonus content to help you tide yourselves over until the next lecture is ready. What follows is a live recording of a lecture that I gave at my school, Washington College, in October 2008. The lecture is titled Tolkien and the Environment, and I was particularly excited about it because it was a joint lecture I gave in collaboration with one of my former students. Shannon Holst, class of 2007, works as a research associate at Washington College's Center for the Environment and Society. Shannon took my Tolkien class, and she and I had had several conversations about Tolkien's interests and environmental issues. She asked me to give this lecture, and I, knowing that she had written an excellent paper on this same subject, suggested we speak together. This was the first time I'd given a public lecture with one of my former students, and I had a really great time with it. In addition to agreeing to give the talk with me, Shannon has also had the grace to give me permission to post this lecture here on my podcast, for which I am grateful. This recording contains my talk, Shannon's paper, and then a Q&A session at the end. So, without further ado, I give you Tolkien and the Environment. I'd like to start the talk as I think Tolkien would like, that is, with a discussion of words. Uh, the OED defines environment as the objects or the region surrounding anything, the conditions under which any person or thing lives or is developed. In other words, a synonym might be surroundings. Now, Tolkien was a philologist. He was a linguist. He was that first and foremost before he was anything else. And I think he would have been troubled by the implications of how we in our society have come to use that word, environment. Being concerned with the surroundings might be a very good thing from Tolkien's perspective if we took that word in a broadly applicable sense. That is, if by a focus on the environment we meant being concerned for the surroundings and habitats of all living things, of trees and birds and beasts. But Tolkien would fear, I think, and I think he'd be right to fear, that by the environment, we usually simply mean our surroundings, the human habitat. And the word especially used with a definite article, the way we usually do, calling it the environment, suggests a worldview that has humans 
and human concerns clearly enthroned in the center, relegating all other living things to the status of mere surroundings. If we think this way, even unconsciously, we make all other living creatures, the birds, beasts, and trees previously mentioned, merely part of the backdrop, just props on the stage of the human drama. Now, this, even this per- perspective could work potentially. I mean, it could work out okay if, while we're standing in the center, we're looking outwards. Uh, that is, if we're concerning ourselves with our, if we're concerning ourselves with our surroundings in the sense of taking an interest in the lives of those trees, beasts, and birds that do surround us. But again, I think that Tolkien would suspect that we would be taking an interest in them not for their own sakes, but for ours. The word environment, in that sense, is suggestive of a fundamental human egocentrism. For this reason, I don't think that Tolkien would have ever called himself an environmentalist, uh, and he would have had very small sympathy with many of the ways in which most people in our culture use that term. What Tolkien did embrace and advocate was a steady, deep-rooted, and at times even passionate love for the natural world, and especially for its living creatures, and most especially for trees. Uh, Just a a brief note. I'm going to read some longish passages uh, from Tolkien's writings during this talk because I I want you to hear Tolkien's own voice on this subject as much as possible. I I couldn't quite do justice to his enthusiasm just by telling you about it. Um, In one of his letters, he shows the profundity of his admiration for nature, He's complaining in this letter, again, he often does this, about the industrialization of the English countryside. And he says that if he could see the destruction of all the slums and gas gas works and shabby garages and long arc-lit suburbs, he would agree also to give up all works of art. He'd just go back to trees, he said. In the Silmarillion, Manwe, the chief of the angelic beings overseeing the earth, asks Yavanna, the goddess of all growing things, he says, of all thy realm, what dost thou hold dearest? All have their worth, said Yavanna, and each contributes to the worth of the others. But the Kelvar, the beasts, can flee or defend themselves, whereas the Olvar that grow, the plants, cannot. And among these I hold trees dear. Long in the growing, swift shall they be in the felling, And unless they pay toll with fruit on bough, little mourned in their passing. Tolkien showed great compassion for trees as our fellow creatures and consideration for their circumstances. Several times, he shows that he does, in fact, mourn their passing. In the introductory note, uh, prefacing an essay and short story titled collectively Tree and Leaf, he says of that work, One of its sources was a great-limbed poplar tree that I could see even lying in bed. It was suddenly lopped and mutilated by its owner. I do not know why. It is cut down now. A less barbarous barbarous punishment for its crimes it may have been accused of, such as being large and alive. I do not think it had any friends or any mourners, except myself and a pair of owls. In a letter to his aunt, he speaks at even greater length of this same incident. There was a great tree, he says to her, a huge poplar with vast limbs, visible through my window even as I lay in bed. I loved it and was anxious about it. It had been savagely mutilated some years before, but had gallantly grown new limbs, though of course not with the unblemished grace of its former natural self. And now a foolish neighbor was agitating to have it felled. Every tree has its enemy. Few have an advocate. Too often the hate is irrational, a fear of anything large and alive and not easily tamed or destroyed, though it may clothe itself in pseudo-rational terms. This fool, that is the neighbor, 
said that it cut off the sun from her house and garden, and that she feared for her house if it should crash in a high wind. It stood due east of her front door, across a wide road, at a distance nearly thrice its total height. Thus, only at about the equinox would it even cast a shadow in her direction, and only in the very early morning, one that reached across the road to the pavement outside her front gate. And any wind that could have uprooted it and hurled it at her house would have demolished her and her house without any assistance from the tree. Uh, I feel compelled that to, to, to tell you that he noted in a, in a footnote to his letter, uh, when he called her a fool, um, he, he felt the need to defend her. And he, he says, uh, only in this respect, hatred of trees. She was a great and gallant lady otherwise. <laughs> so you can see that what he objects to is the disregard, the callousness, the lack of consideration for, tr- for, for, for the tree and what it's suffering and, 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 and what its own worth is. Clearly, these people were not thinking about this thing as a living creature like them. His delight in living things resounds throughout his fiction. As we read, we can frequently hear Tolkien's pleasure in the natural world, his savoring of its beauty with all of the senses. We can hear it in Treebeard the Ents' memories of lands long since destroyed. To the beaches of Neldoreth I came in the autumn. Ah, the gold and the red and the sighing of leaves in the autumn of Taurna Neldor. We can hear it in his description of Frodo and Sam's journey through the wild land of Ithilien. Many great trees grew there, planted long ago, falling into untended age amid a riot of careless descendants, and groves and thickets there were of tamarisk and pungent terebinth, of olive and of bay. And there were junipers and myrtles, and times that grew in bushes or with their woody creeping stems mantled in deep tapestries the hidden stones. Sages of many kinds putting forth blue flowers, or red, or pale green, and marjorams, and new sprouting parsleys, and many herbs of forms and scents beyond the garden lore of Sam. As they walked, brushing their way through herb and bush, sweet odors rose about them. The hobbits breathed deep, and suddenly Sam laughed for heart's ease and not for jest. We could hear it in Legolas the Elf's reaction to reaching the grasslands after an all-night trek through the rocky hills. Legolas took a deep breath, like one that drinks in a great draft after long thirst in barren places. Ah, the green smell, he said. It is better than much sleep. Let us run. (laughs) It's not just organic nature, even, that inspires this kind of pleasure, though usually it is. Um, But here's a brief snippet of Gimli the Dwarf's description to Legolas of the glittering caves into which he has been forced by chance. There are columns of white and saffron in dawn rose legolas, fluted and twisted into dreamlike forms. They spring up from many-colored floors to meet their glistening pendants of the roof. Wings, ropes, curtains fine as frozen clouds, spears, banners, pinnacles of suspended palaces. Still lakes mirror them, and plink, a silver drop falls, and the round wrinkles in the grass in the glass make all the towers bend and waver like weeds and corals in a grotto of the sea. No dwarf could be unmoved by such loveliness, he says. None of Durin's race would mine those caves for stone or ore, not if diamonds and gold could be got there. Do you cut down groves of blossoming trees in the springtime for firewood? We would tend these glades of flowering stone, not quarry them. We can see in Tolkien's references to nature not only pleasure, but a genuine respect for other living things. For example... Uh, Frodo's poetic eulogy for Gandalf, when he believes he's dead and he kind of is, include the lines, with bird on bough and beast in den, in their own secret tongues he spoke. 
Notice how Gandalf is praised not for mere kindness to animals, but for friendship with them, for addressing them in their own languages as equals. When Faramir discovers that Frodo is carrying the ring, uh, carrying the ring of power in secret while continually resisting the temptation to use it, he says, interestingly, Are all your kin of like sort? Your land must be a place of peace and content, and there must gardeners be in high honor. Notice the implications uh, of the logic underlying that statement. Since Frodo's land is apparently full of virtuous and noble people, therefore, it must also be a place where gardeners are honored highly. Virtuous and generous people will naturally value a humble respect for the earth and for its creatures, you see. Tolkien's evil characters, unsurprisingly, have the opposite perspective, consistently showing a callous disdain and disregard for living things and even pleasure in their destruction. This attitude confronts Frodo and Sam forcibly when they approach Mordor for the first time. They had come to the desolation that lay before, <clears throat> that lay before Mordor, the lasting monument to the dark labor of its slaves that should endure when all their purposes were made void, a land defiled, diseased beyond all hearing, unless the great sea should enter in and wash it with oblivion. I feel sick, said Sam. In Tolkien's world, desolation and devastation are the inevitable environment of evil. Tolkien doesn't just present an idealized version of nature, though. His stories contain many evil birds and beasts. In The Hobbit, for instance, we meet rude and foul-mouthed crows hovering outside the dragon's lair. And, the, and, and there are bats that flap around the human and elven warriors in the Battle of Five Armies and bring a special kind of horror to the battlefield by fastening vampire-like on the stricken. Treebeard the Ant even admits that not all trees are lovable. He speaks of trees waking up, becoming conscious, and learning to talk, which is normally a beautiful thing. However, he adds, when that happens to a tree, you find that some have bad hearts. There are some trees in the valleys under the mountains, sound as a bell, and bad right through. That sort of thing seems to spread. But even these references afford living creatures a degree of personal respect. They are granted the dignity of moral choice. Trees in Tolkien's fiction become corrupt, can become corrupted and evil, but they're never simply disregarded or treated as a part of the surroundings, except by those who have already become corrupt themselves. But not only does Tolkien refrain from blindly idealizing nature, he also emphasizes very clearly that nature is not to be idolized either. He recognizes the tendency for a passionate love of living things to become inordinate. Tolkien provides a subtle illustration of this principle in the, in the words of Haldir, an elf of Lorien, one of Galadriel's people. Haldir speaks effusively about his love for his environment, that is, for the natural world with which the elves live in companionship. Speaking of the magic cloaks that he has delivered to Frodo and, and his companions, Haldir says... Leaf and branch, water and stone, they have the hue and beauty of all these things under the twilight of Lorien that we love, for we put the thought of all that we love into all that we make. This demonstrates a healthy respect for other living creatures, an appropriate and admirable love for nature. However, elsewhere, Haldir is speaking with the hobbits about Elvenhome, the paradisical land across the sea where the elves can live in everlasting bliss with the gods until the end of time. All elves sooner or later pine for the sea and long to return to their true country. That's why they call it Elven Home. But Haldir remarks, Alas, for Lothlorien that I love, it would be a poor life in a land where no Malorn tree grew. But if there are Malorn trees beyond the great sea, none have reported it. Love for trees is an excellent thing. But if the love for trees in your home wood makes you consider 
that life in paradise might be a poor one in comparison, then you are, so to speak, missing the boat. There are, things that, there are things to be loved that are higher and greater than the natural world around us, and we mustn't neglect the higher for the sake of the lower. The tragic story of the men of Numenor is in part a story of people who would not let go of this earth which they loved and submit to death, the gift of Iluvatar to men. Their inordinate attachment to the created world led them ultimately into an insane armed rebellion against the creator himself. In Tolkien's creation story, the world begins as a mighty symphony, a great music made before God called Iluvatar by the choir of the angelic host. When the music is complete, God shows them the product of their music, and their response is love and desire for it. God grants it it being in response to their desire, and many of the greatest among them choose, because of their love for creation, to bind themselves to this new world for the length of its duration. These beings, the Ainur, love God's creatures because they are things other than themselves, strange and free, wherein they saw the mind of Iluvatar reflected anew and learned yet a little more of his wisdom, which otherwise had been hidden even from the Ainur. Tolkien would have us see our fellow creatures around us, trees, beasts, stones, waters, people, as intrinsically valuable, as beings worthy of respect and fit objects of a delighted love. But we cannot put the creatures in the place of the creator. He would remind us that their value is ultimately derived from the ways in which they reflect the mind of God, and that they are to be loved so that in loving them, we learn a little more of God's wisdom. Enough of the general introduction. I now give you Shannon Holst. Oh. Let's have a transfer of the industrialized apparatus first. <laughs> okay. Let me just get situated with this thing. All right, is that okay back there? Yeah? All right, excellent. Um, Thank you for the wonderful introduction. Um, I should say, too, I started out um, wanting to talk about how Tolkien wasn't an environmentalist in the sense that we use the word environment as in, you know, something that is distinct and separate that, you know, we're out to save or destroy or whatever it is that we're doing to it. Um, And so I kind of had to go back and revise a little bit because I wanted to talk about how much... He does love uh, what we call the environment and kind of what his views are as far as our interaction. So, here we go. (laughs) Um, Tolkien was famously an advocate for trees. In one letter he wrote, Nothing compares with the destruction, torture, and murder of trees perpetuated by private individuals and minor official bodies. The savage sound of the electric saw is never silent wherever trees are still found growing. And it may seem, in some cases, that Tolkien would agree with the tree-hugging environmentalism of the 60s or with the more practicality-driven environmentalism of the current day, um, because he did, after all, value the lives of trees as entities unto themselves. However, Tolkien's environmentalism uh, doesn't necessarily spring from the same source that drives most of those who would call themselves environmentalists. In The Lord of the Rings, one can observe that anything that might be labeled as environmentalism really falls under the broader cloth of the contrast between good and evil, or, as Tolkien puts it, tyranny against kingship, moderated freedom against compulsion, that has long lost any object save power. Freedom, then, for all creatures, is as much a part of Tolkien's environmentalism as is preservation of the natural world. 
Tolkien's environmentalism instead springs from a deep-founded respect for nature and a desire to protect all living things. He saw no value in the destruction of living things for wanton purposes. In the real world, he was a stout defender of trees and others that could not defend themselves. He once wrote that he obviously is much in love with plants and trees and always has been and finds human maltreatment of them as hard to bear as some find ill treatment of animals. He has also been much quoted for noting in all of his works he takes the part of trees as against all their enemies. Tolkien had uh, nostalgia and a passion for things as they once were um, in his recollection of his childhood and kind of his ideal of a simpler time when there's no traffic in the streets or smoke from industrialization in the air. His desire <clears throat> was to conserve a particular lifestyle, one that included trees and rolling fields and farmlands, but as part of the landscape that also included people going about their business. Tolkien's environmentalism focuses on human interactions with the land um, with an emphasis on a responsibility to preserve and protect not only trees, but also a simpler lifestyle that's free from the ills of industrialism. It is important to recognize, in addition, <coughs> the influence of Tolkien's Catholicism on his environmentalism. Uh, within his works, one can observe the standard Christian belief that the earth was created for human use. At times, Tolkien even maintains the perspective that humans, or hobbits, are directly in opposition to outright wilderness, implying they are far more at home in domesticated environments like the Shire, where the hobbits live. However, there is a distinct difference between respectful stewardship of the land and outright dominion, which has at times also been supported by the Christian faith. But when Tolkien speaks out against the destruction of the environment, he also speaks about the morality of restraint, indicating that the fight against Sauron uh, is not just a moral responsibility to the environment, but is also against the fallacy of greed and the temptation of power and dominion. The fight to preserve the environment is part of a larger fight against evil, which Tolkien viewed as the direct result of the fall. It is important to keep this in mind. So... The hobbits are representative of the type of unmechanized rural lifestyle that Tolkien idealizes and wanted to preserve against industrialism. Um, they live an almost idyllic life in the primarily agricultural shelter of the Shire, and Tolkien himself said he was, in fact, a hobbit. He liked gardens, trees, and unmechanized farmlands. He smoked a pipe, and he liked good, plain food unrefrigerated. Tolkien and the hobbits alike enjoy simple pleasures, uncomplicated by the trappings of the modern age. The simple life Tolkien illustrates in the Shire reflects a time past, perhaps one of higher moral standing because it did not seek out more than was necessary for the basic pleasures of life. The reference to unrefrigerated food in particular places his emphasis on a pre-industrial society, alluding to his instinctive mistrust of machinery. The hobbits are satisfied with the fruits of the earth, simple as they may be, without seeking further control over their landscape. Because the hobbits love peace and quiet and good-tilled earth, a well-ordered and well-farmed countryside is their favorite haunt. They do not and did not understand are like machines more complicated than a forge bellows, a water mill, or a hand loom, though they are skillful with tools. They have an innate desire for order and comfort, but in keeping with their stature. Uh, simple tools may enhance their lives, but anything beyond that is just unnecessary, and would really detract from the peace and quiet of Hobbit society. It's not that Hobbits don't employ machines. Tolkien is by no means against agriculture itself or against all industrialization. But the Hobbits love good tilled earth, uh, not just good earth. Within the Shire, their relationship to the land is one of mutual benefit. They do not appear to take any more than they need. 
having no advanced form of industry, and as a result, they have all they could require in plenty. As Sam says, it is best to love first what you are fitted to love. You must start somewhere and have some roots, and the soil of the Shire is deep. From the hobbits, one can learn the value of being fully a part of one's landscape, not just as an inhabitant, but in the same manner as, as trees put down roots, drawing nourishment and giving back all in the same cycle. The implication, by the tone in which Tolkien describes the Shire, is that the hobbits live ideally and in relative peace with their environment. They maintain a peaceful relationship because their simple, work and, mm, their simple lifestyle precludes the necessity of seeking dominion over other species, which, as will be seen later, is the root of environmental destruction in Tolkien's world. Um, as one critic observes in his book, um, The Environmental Vision of J.R. Tolkien, Tolkien wrote in a period when images of agrarian life were romanticized, indicating a reaction against industrialism and a desire to return to the perceived ideals of the previous century. As seen in his empathy with the hobbits, Tolkien does idealize their simplistic lifestyle in a direct response against industrialism. However, he goes beyond the romantic, pointing out the provincialism of the hobbits as the result of their sheltered lives on numerous occasions. He's not unaware of the flaws of a simplistic agrarian lifestyle, nor does he attempt to point to the hobbits as the epitome of societies. In a letter, he asserts hobbits are not a utopian vision or recommended as an ideal in their own or any age. Within the Shire, they are in their element, and their lifestyle suits their nature. The main fault of the hobbits is their lack of awareness of the outside world, resulting in tension whenever they leave the Shire. The main lesson to be learned from the lifestyles of the hobbits in the Shire is the value of simplicity and the ease with which one can enjoy plenty and remain in balance with the land when you don't grasp for more. When they leave the Shire, the hobbits are often set in opposition to the natural world, indicating the occasional tension between even the peace-loving hobbits and their environment. As the hobbits leave the boundaries of their home region, uh, Dickerson, the same critic, points out that they encounter changes in the environment that make unavoidable distinctions between the agrarian comforts of the Shire and the hostile forces outside it. When the hobbits enter the old forest, one can see one of the themes frequently found in Christian doctrine that Tolkien seems no need to alter, that of man against nature. In the old forest, the trees do not like strangers. Long ago they attacked the hedge, but the hobbits came and cut down hundreds of trees and made a great bonfire in the forest. Even the hobbits can occasionally be found cutting down and burning trees in defense against the encroaching forest. Here is where Tolkien differs from the breed of environmentalists who would claim the entire world could live in harmony if only we gave it a chance. There's a tension between the cultivated cooperative society of the Shire, cooperative land of the Shire, and that of the wild. Both can exist side by side, but kind of grudgingly. Not even the hobbits in their idyllic society get along well with the entire natural world, and they're not expected to. Frodo and his companions do nothing in particular to offend the old forest, and yet it sets itself against them from the start. When Tom Bobadil, who kind of you know, maintains the old forest, explains to them the nature of the forest, they begin to feel themselves as the strangers where all other things are at home. Tom's words lay bare the hearts of trees and their thoughts, filled with a hatred of things that go free upon the earth, gnawing, biting, breaking, hacking, burning. Outside the Shire, the hobbits find themselves not only out of place, but unwelcome in the wilderness to which they've traveled. Wild things, birds, and other animals feel at home in the old forest, but the hobbits perceive themselves as something quite different, more at home in the cultivated landscapes than in those untouched by hands. 
The memory of past ills is enough to arouse the old forest against the hobbits, displaying an open hostility without even a direct cause. The implications of the hobbits in opposition to the environment would indicate quite a different perspective than you might expect from Tolkien. Old Man Willow is explicitly described as malevolent, and there's no arguing that the trees of the old forest have malicious intentions. This is, however, accepted in the text as a manner of course. The old forest is not evil, um, or Tom Bombadil would do something to eradicate Old Man Willow. Tension is simply a natural result of different creatures living side by side. There are malevolent things in the world. Even the hobbits as a species have their faults and have been known to cause damage to the forest. Tolkien would likely attribute this to the state of the world after the fall in which nothing can exist in perfect harmony. Environmentalists are often too quick to forget that the fuzzy polar bear they're striving to save would most likely attempt to eat them if caught alone in underwears. However, this is no reason to go about slaughtering polar bears. The existence of tension between the made world of humans, or hobbits, and the wilderness does not preclude full-scale battle between the two. There may be a few feints as seen between the hobbits and the old forest, but a grudging respect and acknowledged distance between the two fits into Tolkien's overarching theme that it is unnecessary and immoral to strive for dominion over other creatures, even, and perhaps especially, when they have divergent viewpoints and ways of life. Considering the natural tensions of the environment and those that live in it, the overall focus of Tolkien's ideal landscape appears to be on the coexistence of wild places like the Old Forest side by side, with the well-managed and cultivated lands of the Shire, with the favor probably falling to gardens and fields if it came down to it. When Gandalf speaks of the responsibilities of leaders, he places their part in uprooting the evil in the fields that they know, so that those who live after may have clean earth to till. Gandalf is a steward of the natural world, but he's there primarily for the purpose of helping the peoples of Middle-earth. People require good earth to till in order to produce food and keep the species going. Tolkien would not imply that the earth is not there for human purposes. Uh, near the end of The Return of the King, Gandalf, in fact, tells Butterbird, the waste and time will be waste no longer, and there will be people in fields where once there was wilderness. Agriculture and societies are not in themselves bad things. It is only when they begin to consume unnecessarily that they cross into evil. As Gandalf tells Treebeard, you have not plotted to cover all the world with your trees and choke all other living things. As long as societies continue to let one another exist, they can all thrive and flourish to the best of their abilities. Indeed, as noted by uh, Tom Shippey in Tolkien, Author of the Century, Tolkien had a lifelong sympathy with all kinds of creative endeavor, including the forging of the Simrils and the love of beautiful things made by hands and by cunning and by magic. Creativity and artful craftsmanship are not to be disparaged, but celebrated, as seen in the emphasis of the works of the elves and men in drawers and throughout all the stories of Middle-earth, the great swords of ages past and the jewels shaped and treasured by most of the races. Yet there is a danger in loving too much the work of one's hands, as Tolkien admonishes in the Cimmerillion, and it can go too far. In The Lord of the Rings, Saruman in particular demonstrates the fault of valuing cunning works of machinery. The hobbits value simplicity, and so are able to live in relative peace with the natural world, while Saruman finds himself destroyed by the forces of nature who rise up against his enslavement of the land. A certain amount of restraint is therefore required if creative pursuits are not to end in destruction. The fall of Saruman and his willful destruction of Fangorn Forest, followed by his downfall at the hands of the Ents, 
make for a strong argument in favor of environmentalism as it is more commonly conceived. Again, however, Tolkien continues to put an emphasis not only on the environmental destruction, but on the desire of Saruman to have power over others, which, as Shippey points out, starts as intellectual curiosity, develops his engineering skill, turns to greed and the desire to dominate, and corrupts further into a hatred and contempt of the natural world which goes beyond any rational desire to use it. Ingenuity itself is not discouraged, nor is the opposite extreme in the willful ignorance of the hobbits. With ingenuity, however, one needs a lot more caution, as the desire to event leads to temptation, leads to the temptation to bend more and more to the will of the inventor, and can eventually lead to purposeless destruction as the inventor turns to tyrant and attempts to gain power over all within his reach. In terms of the environment, many who seek to expand their control need resources to do so, and typically have no qualms about destroying the natural world in order to gain their ends. There's a lot more to Tolkien's attitude towards Saruman than you know, a dislike of people that destroy trees. Isengard uh, had once been green and filled with avenues, while under Saruman the roads are paved with stone flags, dark and hard, and beside their borders, instead of trees, there march long lines of pillars joined by heavy chains. The descriptions of Isengard are intended to point towards Saruman's desire for order and control, which are ultimately out of keeping with the natural world. His attempts to replace trees with machinery are examples of that. And Saruman wants these skill without purpose, bulldozing for the sake of change, an echo of the age of industrialism. In the Shire, Tolkien advocates the use of land for the purpose of creating plenty for those who live there, but not out of measure. Saruman's downfall begins when he desires control beyond what is necessary until he finds he can only gain more control through destruction. He cannot control the forest, therefore he attempts to replace it. However, this is ultimately purposeless as it does nothing to improve the state of the world and the more he attempts to control, the more he will inevitably destroy Sermon puts far too much faith in the abilities of machinery over natural processes. The flaw of machinery, Tolkien argues, lies in the fact that unlike art, it attempts to actualize desire and so to create power in this world, and that cannot really be done with any real satisfaction. Labor-saving machinery only creates endless and worse labor, and in addition is added the fall, which makes our devices not only fail of their desire, but turn to a new and horrible evil primarily against dominion that Tolkien is speaking. Uh, while art can create changes in the mind, which is within the human realm of power, industry attempts to force change on the real world, which is only within the power of divinity, in his view. The hobbits don't attempt to save time with complicated machinery, but they still have plenty of time for leisure. They don't desire any, any additional power. Saruman, on the other hand, makes things far too complicated, and his quest for dominion causes him to lose sight of the original purpose of his ingenuity. While he initially intends to gain power for the sake of correcting the wrongs in the world, he inevitably falls to evil and destruction, and an overborne desire for control leads to the insatiable greed that plagues all of the villains of Middle-earth. Um, and this is evidenced in Tolkien's descriptions of Mordor in particular. Um, when Tolkien discusses the complete destruction that is the landscape of Mordor, he intends to emphasize the evil of Sauron and the hopelessness of the quest of the ring. Mordor is the extreme conclusion of the devastating effects of an attempt to have dominion over the land set in tangible terms where it becomes clear what must be done. Sauron himself is simply evil in the sense that the Christian doctrine has evil, um, total and complete. 
He's the devil of Middle-earth, and there is not once a mention in The Lord of the Rings of reforming him or changing his misguided, polluting ways. He must be stopped before he devastates all of Middle-earth. Um, it is a oh, Mortar is a wasteland as a reflection of Sauron's evil, and it's a representation of evil followed to the fullest extent. In Mortar, one can see Tolkien's purpose is not simply saving the environment, but destroying ultimate evil in a manner that's difficult to achieve in the real world where good and evil are often very blurred. Mortar is not about profit or gain, but destruction for the sake of destruction. We're almost there, I promise. There is a distinct difference between the Hobbit's approach to the land and Saruman or Sauron's, and this echoes the overall moral sentiment against domination. When Sam becomes tempted by the ring, he imagines that at his command, the Vale of Gorgoroth becomes a garden of flower and trees. But he knows in the core of his heart that he is not large enough to bear such a burden. The one small garden of a free gardener is all his need and do, not a garden swollen to a realm, his own hands to use, not the hands of others to command. Those who are labeled as evil, from Saruman to Sauron, desire to place the entire world under their control, imposing their will on all peoples and lands, turning them to a wasteland if this is necessary to achieve the you know, natural ends of domination. Sam provides the perfect example of restraint in the face of temptation, knowing that he does not need more than what will sustain him. In choosing a small garden rather than a realm, Sam does not chain himself to a greed which can never be satisfied. He can find pleasure in his own work and yet remain free. Thus, Sam epitomizes the moral restraint that lies at the core of Tolkien's environmentalism, a simple life rooted in a place which he loves and respects and not beyond his measure, provides Sam with all he needs while ensuring he remains in balance with the land on which he depends. Tolkien's advocacy for the natural world, and particularly for trees, springs from a love for the land and for all growing things in the way they relate to mankind, not as servants, but as other beings of the world. Like Sam, he understands the consequences of desire beyond measure. He is not one of those who would preserve all for the sake of preserving, as he has a clear understanding that all things fade and change, nor would he have the entire landscape put to use for human purposes. Tolkien's vision is much broader and encompasses the moral aspects of mankind's interactions with the land and one another, not just the environment. If modern environmentalists are to draw anything from the Lord of the Rings, it should be the realization that it isn't simply the cutting down of trees against which they need to be on their guard, but against those who grasp forever more power with the intent of taking the freedom of the other living creatures and trees with which they share the earth. Tolkien, most likely, would disagree with many forms of modern environmentalism for the same reason. Um, those that seem focused on controlling the environment down to the smallest of details, all in an attempt to wring maximum efficiency from natural systems that are most efficient when left to function on their own. Trees, as Tolkien would be sure to point out, were never meant to be controlled by even the most well-intentioned of humans, as this leads to what he refers to in his letters as Sarmanism. As he says in his letters, he is averse to planning, as must be plain, most of all because the planners, when they require power, become so bad. The spirit of Isengard, if not of mortar, is of course always cropping up. It is against the spirit that environmentalists need to be on their guard, against the ever-present desire for dominion, for more control, for efficiency, and for the overly complicated machinery with which societies can become burdened. When, in Tolkien's view, happiness lies in gardens, trees, good food, and a well-filled pipe.
Hey, well, you can now, you need to leave without offending us, but I hope that we can uh, talk as well. Are, are there any uh, questions or thoughts that anybody has that you'd like to ask or share? <laughs> it's always so quiet. It's always hard to be the first one. Go ahead. I'll just kick it off and see if there was any, is there any disconnect or difference in the way the two of you view Tolkien as an environmentalist or in Tolkien's definition? When you started, Corey, it seemed to me that you were saying that Tolkien would view the environment as surrounded as something separate from humans, um, where everything has its place. And I got the thrust of Shannon being more one of stewardship of some kind of separateness, but also, you know, I don't think so. I, the main point that I was wanting to make at the beginning is simply that he would be alarmed at the words that we use to talk about what we talk about. I don't think he would be uh, categorically opposed to environmentalists and what they do, but he would be very uncomfortable with the way that people talk about the environment. And what, what I'm especially thinking of there, I mean, I, I get, and I might be wrong about this, but I suspect if you go to an average American and say, um, what are your thoughts about the environment, about environmental issues? What they would primarily be talking about were would be things like how do we maintain our lifestyle in the face of an oncoming energy crisis? You know, which essentially boils down to can we develop ways which will permit me to carry on driving my Hummer? I mean, and, and, and trees and birds are very, very far. From their own minds, and that is, there, there is a way in which talking about the environment as we do, and using that particular word, invites invites the thought of everything else besides humans as being kind of the backdrop to human life, and maybe necessary for it, or, or but you know need to be kind of massaged or managed perhaps in some ways so as to allow humans to to, to, to carry on cheerfully in whatever ways that they want to carry on. Um, that concept, like thinking about the environment in that way, he would be very strongly opposed to, but I don't think Shannon would yeah. disagree with that. Um, so that's, it's one of the things that I always find awkward. The reason I started there is that there are a lot of critics, like the, the authors of the book that, that Shannon quoted from, who like to seize on Tolkien as sort of a voice for modern environmentalism. And there are ways in which that works really well, but... You can't just say that, like Tolkien would, was an environmentalist, because he would want to be careful about what you mean by that. Um, so, no, I, I totally agree with Shannon's description. <laughs> uh, I just was sort of trying to make the kind of, uh, of objection that I think Tolkien would make to the way we use that word. My yeah. Name. Yeah. Which, yeah, which I would agree with. And we talked about this before we started, too, that I didn't... I was concerned in my paper about giving the impression that Tolkien thought the environment was this thing that's out there um, that is separate from the people that are living in it. It's There's people, and they live in their own distinct things. The hobbits are over here. The ants are over here. But um, they're not living you know, separate from the land that they're on. It's not like a hobbit would ever say, go out and say, oh, I'm going to save the environment because that would make no logical sense to him. He's just there. That's his land. He's going to do what he does there where he's living. Yeah. It reminds me of a, a passage actually that I just recently read uh, in a book by C.S. Lewis, one of Tolkien's good friends, where he said that the concept of the countryside only exists in an urban society. Yeah. If you don't have cities, you don't have the countryside. You just have land. 
right? And so in that way, yeah, hobbits aren't going to talk about protecting the environment because they don't have a concept of an environment that is separate from you know, their own relationship with the land. And in some ways, hobbits, uh, the relationship between hobbits and the Shire is the relationship, sort of the environmental relationship that is most applicable uh, in Tolkien's vision to humans and our actual relationship with our environment. But it's not. If there is an idyllic relationship, it's the one that the elves have. Uh, the elves live in perfect harmony with nature. They don't even have to till it and everything. It just, you know... Provides. It just provides <laughs> for them. But it's more complicated, and we couldn't... Because there's, 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 there's magic involved. Elves have a control and authority. Well, I use that word cautiously, thinking about... Not a dominion, but an authority <laughs> over, over nature, which does actually lead them to, to, to greater... Uh, kinds of temptations. Uh, they, they, they can do worse things if they were to go wrong. Fortunately, they usually don't, but they can do worse things. But, but the kind of harmony that they live in with their environment, that's the real ideal, where they, where they genuinely... There was a passage I, I was... I almost quoted, but didn't... Um, where Legolas' first reaction when he gets to Lothlorien and he sees a Malorn tree, which he's never seen but he's heard about before. And his first reaction to it is a kind of reaction which, again, shows the way that Tolkien thinks about trees as, as creatures. You know, he says... He says, ah, now I will see what, you know, I, I will climb in the tree and she, see what is its shape and way of growth. It's like, I'm going to introduce myself to the Malorn tree and find out about it as, as well, not as a person, but as a tree. Right? And that kind of attitude that elves have, that's the, the good attitude towards other living things. Um, and hobbits don't have that same kind of attitude, but again, their relationship is more practical. We can't <laughs> like elves. When Sharky comes in and and de- destroys the hobbits, um, a lot of environmentalists, the same critic that I quoted from, they they like to kind of use that particularly as an example of oh well he must have been talking about how after World War II particularly um, a lot of industrialism entered the countryside of England which he was so fond of, um, and they kind of point to that passage um, which if you haven't read the books is where uh, Saruman in disguise comes to the Shire and they, you know, they build factories and all the hobbits are sad and all the trees are cut down. And, um, and they build ugly brick buildings. Yes, they build a lot of ugly yeah. buildings. And <laughs> the, the, a lot of people try and, and link that as a parallel to what was actually happening in England. And Tolkien was like, no, no, that's not what I meant. Um, but I kind of see it more as an example of what happens when somebody comes in and is like, I'm going to improve this. You know, the, the hobbits, for all that they have, you know, their differences with the environment, live basically at peace, you know. Sometimes they have their little things, but, you know, they're more or less living with the land. When somebody comes in and says, well, we're going to improve this, we're going to have more things, we're going to produce more, and, oh, we're not even using the land the way we could be. Look how much more we could produce here. Then you end up with that kind of uh, result that you have the ugly big brick buildings and the pollution and all those things. Um, which Tolkien in general was against because that was a way of subverting uh, nature to means beyond what you actually needed. Um, as soon as it turns into about profit and greed, that that's when you end up with the environmental destruction. Yeah, it, the way that they talk about the new mill is, yeah, is interesting. They, um, they complain, it's just, uh, 
Lotho is a hobbit who builds the mill at first, uh, who is serving Saruman. And he says, Lotho's idea was to, to, to grind more and faster with this ugly new mill, which has a smokestack and pollutes the river. Um, but the, the other hobbits observe, they say, but you need grist to grind, and there wasn't any more mill, there wasn't any more corn for the new mill to grind than there was for the old mill to grind. In other words, we didn't get anything out of it. I mean, the, so the, the, there's another way in which this idea of this idea of progress, this idea of industrial advancement, actually divorced from from real <laughs> circumstance. Um, you know that people will do this just for the sake of building the new machine, rather than actually having benefit from it. Um, yeah, he makes a lot of fun of. Uh, and, and, and ugliness. In his letters, more than anything else, he complains about the ugliness of industrial buildings. And this comes back to the point that Shannon was making about his, his appreciation for art and craftsmanship. Um, that he kept saying, Sirius, is the problem is it seems that people nowadays are incapable of building buildings that aren't ugly. Uh, you know, and, and that you know, there's the, 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 these old buildings, which you know, I, a, a craftsman of old might have spent you know, a, a great deal of time making a, 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 a beautiful human artifact. And now we just throw these concrete things up uh, uh, and these brick things, and it's, and, and it's really felt. So it's, it's, it's as much of a, a sort of a, a different way in which that same kind of moral corruption is kind of evident in itself. Did you have a question? Somebody? Somebody Someone. <laughs> Definite hand-raising gesture. Okay, well, I'll answer John's other question more. <laughs> the words that I think that Tolkien would like that environmentalists can use, I think that he would really like discussions of like ecosystems and things. Uh, I mean, as as you probably heard in one of the first quotations I read, when when Yovana is talking about nature, just each has its own value and each adds to the value of others. He very much uh, thought about nature in terms of he wouldn't have used that word in terms of ecosystems and the interrelation of living things, humans included, uh, within that system. That's, I think, the kind of terminology that environmentalists use that he really would get behind. Um, it's not yeah. environment. The kind of fascinating thing that you can take out of that, too, is there's so many different races living side by side in you know the land of Middle-earth. There's elves, there's hobbits, there's humans, and they all interact with the earth with the land very very differently but that's okay for all of them it's not necessarily a bad thing that the hobbits like the till and the elves just basically farage from what you can gather um, there's never any reference to elven agriculture um, not really they plant no. trees sometimes but yeah. um, and the dwarves are totally different I mean after uh, Ivana has this one where she, she, she conceives of the the Ents will be the shepherds of the trees and who will defend the trees from people who will just go in around and cut them down. And her husband is the, 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 the sort of the god, the angelic figure who's in charge of building the mountains. He's the smithcraft god. And his, he's the father of the dwarves. And so she comes to him and says, she says, your people, the dwarves, best beware because the trees will now have a defender. And, and she goes on for a long time and then his response is, he doesn't even look up. He's, he's at his fork. He doesn't even look up. He says, and yet they will have need of wood. <laughs> so, I mean, they're still going to chop down the trees, right? Now we can see, you know, in the in the quotation from Gimli and his description of the caves that I read before, we can still see a fundamental appreciation. Even though he doesn't feel the same way that the elves do about trees, he recognizes the way that elves feel about trees. He can sympathize with their love of flowering groves and things, and you can see 
uh, even if you, if you pay attention to the metaphors that he uses to describe the caves, they're still mostly organic. You know, he describes the, uh, the, 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 the columns and, and stalactites as like, like coral and weeds. And, um, you know, so he, he's still, and he's comparing them to groves of trees and everything. So, um, you know, flowers. But, um, but yeah, so there, 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 there's a wide array of, of, uh, of perspectives. And it's one of the things which is always really hard when people want to kind of reach into Tolkien to pull out nuggets to, to, to sort of make point environmentalist or otherwise. Um, it's kind of complicated, and you always have to be really careful doing that because he pre- presents a wide array of perspectives, none of which are 100%, um, rarely 100% okay. There are problems and challenges with each one of them. Easier to find clear and obvious negative examples than Tolkien. <laughs> to find completely unadulterated positive examples. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> a few minutes ago you had said that um, you know, practically speaking it makes no sense at all to try to emulate the relationship that the elves have with nature. Have critics or have critics jumped on Tolkien for being somewhat naive and suggesting that we can even emulate the relationship that hobbits have with nature. I mean, going back to a more simple time, I think we were past that, even in the post-Second World War. We are certainly well past that now. And so, I mean, there is a school of environmental ethicists that, while they appreciate the, the efforts to talk about intrinsic value in nature and biocentric perspectives, if, if we really need to affect change, we have to just be real. Uh, is there any, anything like that kind of attitude in the critics? The ones that I was reading mostly latched on to the hobbits as kind of an ideal of what we should be doing, which was where I had my major problem and where I think Tolkien would have a major problem because he says himself, you know, the hobbits aren't intended as an ideal. They're not meant to be this idyllic society. The hobbits, for him, I think, were more of a nostalgia for what he remembered growing up in the countryside and that kind of thing that just, you know, came into Middle Earth as like this little lovely peaceful bubble that gets attacked from all sides by the more realistic senses, I guess. Um... And the critics very often are like, oh, yes, look at how the hobbits live in peace. And I think there are lessons that you can learn from the hobbits, like the tendency towards simplicity and not, you know, building machinery just for the sake of building machinery. Um, But I haven't, I don't know that I've found any critics that that actually say that, which is why I wanted to talk about it, because I didn't come across any that, that were pointing out what you can learn from the hobbits as opposed to just grasping onto the Shire as this amazing environmental ideal. That's why I think the focus of Shannon's paper is so important, because in the end, Tolkien wasn't any kind of activist you know, in the environmental space. He was a defender of trees, usually individual trees. He, he was, for instance, a frequent uh, corresponder with local newspapers uh, to uh, you know, draw attention to and protest against you know, the felling of a grove of trees by the county officials for the sake of erecting a uh, completely unnecessary and inevitably ugly uh, building of some sort. Right? I mean, he, he often would write in letters to protest against things like that. But as far as a kind of broader activism, uh, sort of a theoretical activism, he never 
went around saying things like, we must return to the simpler life. He shamelessly would have liked it had people returned to the simpler life. Um, and he was, especially in his letters, um, in, uh, invariably cranky about industrial life. Well, I think he's pretty clear about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Setting what we should be, what direction we should be going. I mean, he's clearly not happy with, with industrialization. He's not, but again, this way. What I think is so important, as I said, about what Shannon was saying is that his biggest concern, the thing that he was more broadly, kind of adjective form of activist, activistic, that it's not quite right. Uh, I don't know, actually. That which he had engaged in more activism towards, um, was domination, this kind of generality. Right, yeah. and this was he, this was the poison of everything. The environment is just one subset of things that are poisoned and, and damaged by this, by what he called Saramanism. Saramanism he does refer to specifically as the way that people interact with their environment and with mechanization. But the spirit of Mordor, he was. I mean, for instance, he was uh, during World War Two very much in support of the Allies, uh, very clear on the fact that uh, that the Nazis were the enemy, said that if he were young enough, he would, he, you know, he wasn't infantry in World War One. he was, he was, he was uh, buried in the mud of the Somme, but, uh, but he said, I, had I been young enough, I would enlist in, in World War II. Um, but, throughout the war, was mercilessly critical of the leaders of the Allies in the unscrupulous uh, and unethical, power-hungry things that they were doing. Uh, he often would kind of make allusions and make a sort of metaphors from uh, the ter- in the terms of his fiction. He would say, you know, the problem is there are orcs on both sides here. Um, and there are definitely orcs leading the, 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 you know, on the side of the British in this war, which is why he couldn't, you know, he was really uncomfortable with it. That, for him, is the big problem. And if you can solve that, if, 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 if only this desire to dominate, this desire to control people, uh, to, uh, to, have, to exert power over people, and to exert power over nature, over, over other living things, if that could be changed, then mechanization, industrialization, might proceed uh, in a way which he could find acceptable. One of the arguments that he makes in, one, in, in his, uh, his, his essay on fairy stories, he says, industrialization always ends in bombs. You know, that, 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 that military technology is the logical and, in fact, the inevitable end of industrialization. Um, that's the, pro- this, the, the big problem that he had with it. And if we could get away from the bombs, he might be more comfortable with dishwashers. <laughs> I always think when you're talking about labor saving, I'm always picturing yeah. dishwashers. My <laughs> personal favorite labor, labor <laughs> uh, I think of Bilbo doing all those dishes. Uh, and still having time for a luxurious second breakfast on the lawn after. But of course, Bilbo also was independently wealthy and had no job. <laughs> <laughs> um, other questions? I know you, and, and, and again, please, if you, if you have to go. We're, we're, we're beginning to the stage where we're imposing upon you if we keep <laughs> going longer. But we're chatty. What can we say? You think Tolkien had an inner desire by 
picking a person from each of the races within Middle Earth to go on the quest to get rid of the one ring? And then he showed man as being the weakest link among that group. It is in humans most clearly in the Lord of the Rings that he demonstrates uh, and to use the, 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 the Christian theological terms that Shannon was alluding to, the fallen nature of man. It is in humans that we can see that most clearly. They are most susceptible to the thing which he most worries about people in the real world being susceptible to, that is the desire for power. Um, and others are susceptible to it, and we see people in other races falling morally in different ways. Um, they're none of them perfect, even elves, um, who remain, as he says in The Hobbit, good people. Um, Even they have their issues. Um, The interesting thing, that that, the word that he uses to describe the group, because of course it's not a representative of all of the races get to be in the fellowship. I mean, obviously orcs underrepresented in the fellowship of the ring. Uh, But 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 there are lots of, I mean, the eagles don't get an invite, and arguably they should, in fact. Many people have made the argument that actually probably would have been a good idea. Uh, you know, <laughs> Save some time. The party. Like, <laughs> he, he calls, you know, and treatment abuse is the same ter- terminology. They talk about the free people, right? You know, there are peoples who are free. It's not they're like good guys and bad guys necessarily, though they are relatively much more polarized. Yeah. It's the free people <clears throat> and the enslaved peoples. The orcs are evil because as a race they're enslaved. Um, their will, their very wills, are enslaved by 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 Sauron and by Morgoth before him. Um, you can see this because you know the, the orcs are all very evil. Um, you know, there's, there there are no good orcs, and orcs, you know, like they don't when they go to bed at night. You know, they're not like, oh man, you know, I really probably shouldn't have, you know, like killed all those people earlier today. They they don't have doubts in that way. They're pure evil. But when you know, there's there's that that moment when at the end, right before Sauron is destroyed, when Sauron, the moment that Sauron realizes that there's this hobbit with the ring of power <laughs> right next to them. And, and you know, when Sauron has that huge, holy crap moment, and he turns all of his attention on Mount Doom, and all of his will is withdrawn from all of his captains and all the orcs. They're in battle, you know, like getting ready, and, you know, they like to do things like, you know, start eating the living corpses of injured. I mean, they're so evil. And all of a sudden, they just stop, and they just kind of wander around. They're like, where am I? What am I doing? Why am I here? And as soon as Sauron is killed, or not killed, but, you know, anyway, it's complicated. But anyways, they immediately, they they just immediately bolt and run. Um, So, it's slave versus free peoples. And that's sort of, for him, the primary primary dynamic. And again, that's why the problem is our tendency, do we want what kind of relationship are we going to have? Are we going to, are, do we want orcs serving under us? Um, and that you know, the orc is sort of the logical uh, moral end of humanity, of, of, and, and, and of, especially with the people. I mean, I was thinking, uh, Shannon, what you had said earlier about his, his thoughts about government, oh. um, where yes. he, he considers himself almost an anarchist because he's very uncomfortable with, with government and the kind of, that it's, it's, it's very difficult to yeah. be in that position of power and not be fall corrupted. prey to Saramanism or even Sauronism. Yeah, the, the quote that I was talking about before, he says that he dislikes government with a capital G in the sense that that is your job, is to govern. Like, he prefers that people are kind of governing themselves with a little g. Not that there is no government or no organization, but that there isn't a person who's set in place and all they do all day long is govern because that just opens up this floodgate 
of, oh, well, now I have all this control. What can I do with it? Evil laughter. Yes. Um, yes the Shire is ruled by a mayor whose only job is to preside at the annual feasts yeah. and give a speech. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a good form of government right there. Anyway, yeah, I mean... To I, a large I, extent. I think that there, there, are, there are a couple of reasons to suspect that he, he might have voted Nader more than once. He's been American. Really let you go. Yes. If, if any of you would like to continue talking, come down. We'll be delighted to continue talking. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming. Yeah.